0: Please listen carefully, carefully, carefully,
1: carefully, 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 Hello, and welcome to Utterly Moderate, the podcast where two reasonable social scientists analyze important topics by clearing away politics, opinions, and ideologies to get to the facts.
0: I'm Alison Dagnus. I'm a political scientist. And I'm Lawrence Eppard. I'm a sociologist. Allie, I'm going to ask you for some advice. Before we get started today, I need some advice.
1: Okay, I'm ready. I love giving advice.
0: I, I'm a bit perplexed because I really want to lose weight. Okay. And I found this website that's really, really motivating, but there's a problem. What's the problem? It uses cookies.
1: <sighs> Why are you, li- you... are, You are laughing so hard. That's not... A funny joke <laughs> like at all <laughs> and, and i'm not i mean i'm not claiming to be a comedian but that was that didn't even that doesn't even deserve your <laughs> wow wow that just was bad
0: in, in all seriousness are you excited that spring has begun or is is it, starting to bud a little bit
1: i'm very excited um and hopefully it'll just get warmer maybe a little drier although i know there's the whole april showers bring mayflowers and mayflowers bringing pilgrims was that the joke you wanted to tell after this Um, i bet it was it was something like that
0: it's close uh what i I wanted to say was uh i got so excited the other day that spring is coming Mm -hmm. i wet my plants
1: (laughs) now that's funny that's funny i like that that's good i wet my plants oh my god (laughs) I'm just thinking how I'm going to say that loudly in front of my 15 year old daughter, and she's just going to self just She'll just it'll just be a lot of hair left, and hopefully her phone, so I can get a refund. Why
0: don't you say um, when you when you open the passenger side door and she's exiting to go to school? Why don't you say it loudly then in front of all her friends?
1: Well, I would, but then that takes away from the. I'm glad we got you a good bra, honey, because your boobies look really nice. <laughs> I'm kidding. I do not say that. I absolutely do not. Also, she's so fast on closing that door that uh, <laughs> I wouldn't even get to bra. <laughs> does,
0: she, does she make you drop her off like a block from school?
1: No, school makes me drop <laughs> her off a block from school. It's the weirdest thing. We we just like right before COVID started, we we had this new driving plan where you had to go down a one way street that was across the street and there's a crossing guard. It was so complicated and and all the. The villagers around me were frustrated, and I thought, okay, we'll figure it out. And we did, and it's fine, but it is a block and a half away from school, which I think makes all of the high schoolers really happy. That way, you know, they can just sort of like throw their backpacks over their shoulders and put their, you know, their ball caps to the side, you know, and that little swagger that they have once they're far away from their parents, minivans and, um, you know, saunter in. As
0: are if they're they, cool kids. are they back to when I was in high school, the one strap was cool. And then at one point, then two straps became cool. Right. What are they at now? Is it two straps or one strap for the backpack?
1: I have no idea. My daughter brings so much stuff into school that she has. There are times that she has a backpack with two straps, not to be cool, but because she basically needs a Sherpa to help her like get into the high school. And she also has a front pack that is also two straps hanging out her front as if she's carrying, you know, your baby in a baby bjorn, but it's not. It's like her lunch and her bag and also something for field hockey. And I don't know, maybe our dog. I'm really not even sure at this <laughs> point. Dog. There's just a lot of stuff. And then there's the hockey stick and the, you know, like an umbrella. And so it looks like she's, you know. Doing cross-country skiing. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a lot of hormones and stuff.
0: You mentioned a, a minivan. We our cars in the shop getting some work done, and we rented a minivan. And my kids think it's the coolest thing that they've ever seen. And They're like sad yeah. to think we have to return it.
1: You know, I am because you have five hundred children. I'm surprised <laughs> you don't have a minivan. And I'll tell our you, school that bus. I, I did have you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I had a minivan for many, many years and I loved it so much. It just made everything easier. Oh It really did. It was a delight. You should totally get a minivan between all the car seats and whatever. Yeah. I mean, oh my God. I got to pick a different career.
0: Yeah. They, it's got the two sliding doors. They open Uh, automatically. It's amazing.
1: uh, Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's fantastic. We, we traded that in for a, you know, for like the, next level of child you know the high school slash college suv and so that's what we are
0: something cool enough that she'll allow you to drop her off a block away that's
1: exactly that's exactly (laughs) right but that also has a deep enough uh well in in the front seat so that when something embarrassing is happening, she could duck down. And nobody can see her driving with me. When something embarrassing thing. has
0: happened, like every time you do something with her.
1: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, and and half the time it isn't even me. It's just that we've, you know, we've driven by like, you know, a running team or something Boop! right down, like completely invisible. She's amazing.
0: Can you give us an example of a time that you embarrassed your child?
1: Um, uh, Every time we go out in public. OK, here's a really good one, though. And this is very specific. Last year, about a week from now, is that possible? No, we were in lockdown then. It was probably two years ago. We were in Target and it was right after St. Patrick's Day. And apparently they were selling for St. Patrick's Day a man's like unitard (laughs) that made them out to be a like a what is it that, you know, it's like a uh, like the. What is the the like character of St. Patrick's Day?
0: A leprechaun?
1: Leprechaun, okay. that's what it is. Okay. And I was thinking elf, but that was I'm thinking
0: Green here. Man from Always Sunny, but go ahead.
1: Okay, so <laughs> leprechaun. And um, and so Caroline was very busy on her phone and did not see my husband take that, go into the dressing room, no. put it on, yes, no. he did. and put it on and came out and was like, <laughs> Caroline, what do you think? And honestly, no one in the history of, of <laughs> flight has ever run this fast. I mean, she just was bam, right out the door. You're looking she, like Borat? I mean, she, it was like, she was a cartoon character. There was smoke coming out from under her feet as she was moving. It was, it was really pretty great. And, um and so my husband looked at me and said, I don't know. I don't think it really works for me. And went back into the changing room, <laughs> took it off. We left. And I thought that my, you know, then 13 year old was just going to die a million deaths. But since then we've learned. And you know, even in quarantine, we still have ways of embarrassing her. And I'm really proud of that because that's why you have kids See, to staff way. up and also embarrass them.
0: Well, my kids are, are pre adolescent. So, uh, they're not oh. at the stage where everything embarrasses them. So
1: yeah.
0: most of what I do with my kids is aimed at embarrassing my wife. So, uh, when we lived in wow, blocks, that seems
1: unnecessarily cruel go ahead
0: (laughs) well when we lived i think it was when we lived in blacksburg uh my son (laughs) when we used to walk around the neighborhood he liked to practice ninja moves and he liked for me to join in and so i (laughs) would be walking around purposefully so that my (laughs) wife would see i'd be in front of neighbors driveways doing like jumping spin kicks like as as (laughs) As unathletically as they possibly could, <laughs> which isn't hard for me, but uh, yeah, that's what I do.
1: Okay, that <laughs> is genius. I like that. That's fantastic. My husband is unflappable, so there's no way, there's absolutely no way to embarrass him. In the least, like none.
0: So Pete's unflappable, you couldn't uh, embarrass him the way I embarrass Sarah?
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Good military guy. Very, very non-emotional, just, you know, laser focused. And like I said, unflappable.
0: No emotion. So he wasn't uh, like a drama kid in high school or in a band no. or anything like that.
1: He was actually in a band in college.
0: Yes, he was. Oh, he wasn't a he band. Was,
1: he wasn't a band. But um, uh, in going with the unflappable part, the band was called Wooden Music. <laughs> and so that is, that is a true story. Um, and so my acoustic guitar playing husband, um, unemotionally, played in a band.
0: (laughs) How did I'm not sure how those two things happened together, but
1: oh oh my gosh,
0: it was a walking contradiction. How did the name Wooden Music come about?
1: I think they were. I think they were going for like acoustic guitars. (laughs) And I was like, did you ever stop to just think about what wouldn't also means he was like no we really didn't you know then, like change the subject is that how your husband so, sounds i like, never met people. yeah it pretty much sounds like this no i mean that, that makes him sound like he's a muppet
0: he's a kermit
1: yeah you know um actually speaking of muppets do you know and speaking of bands do you know what cookie monster's favorite band is
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm scared to ask oreo Speedwagon. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, are you a musical person? Do you have a musical household and your husband played in a band? Is there a lot of music that fills the Dagnus house?
1: We we are a very we enjoy music. My husband is the one with talent. I um, I think I skipped a generation of musical ability because my grandmother was phenomenally talented and actually was like a um, professional violinist. And then my mother was a violist, which everyone will tell you is a violinist who didn't make first chair, and that is exactly what my mother was. But she got a full ride to University of Michigan to play the viola, actually. Oh wow! And um, and then it skipped a generation, and that's me. So um, eight years ago, eight years ago, I decided I was going to play the cello because I love cello music, and Yo Yo Ma is my personal. Um, hero. And I just adore him. Um, did you catch, by the way, Yo-Yo Ma doing an impromptu concert while he waited the 15 minutes after he got his COVID shot?
0: I, I think you told me about it, but I didn't oh, see it now. So
1: great. Oh my gosh. I love him so much. Um, and I decided that I would never be Yo-Yo Ma. Of course, he's a genius, but I could be Yo Mama. And so um, <laughs> so I decided I would take up cello. And um, And eight years later, And I'm really proud of this. Eight years later, I am so bad. I'm still on book two. My cello teacher, uh, who was a music professor, is the kindest, most patient man in the entire world and still does like the little kitty instruction for me, like make your hand like a duck (laughs) and then put that on the finger pads. And by the way, there are no finger pads. What he's talking about are... Band-aids that he put on my cello to show me where to put my fingers. (laughs) They are still on my cello. I am awful. So I have no musical ability, Lawrence. Long answer to your question, but I do love music a lot. And so our house is filled with music.
0: I love classical music. I do you. I I love it. I adore it. I listen to it all the time. And um I love the fact that I have Sirius XM now, which means that there's multiple classical Mm -hmm. stations. And then music choice on your TV. And of course, there's Pandora and all the great options that you have. And just YouTube. I mean, I mean if, just, if you, yeah.
1: you type in YouTube or go to YouTube and type in Yo-Yo Ma, like you're going to get cello until the cows come home.
0: Well, and I love it. And I find that so much of what I love in music is really tied to my childhood in really interesting ways.
1: Oh, that's nice. Yeah.
0: So like classical music, I adored my grandfather. Mm -hmm. and he was the best man at my wedding and I remember when I, yeah, I remember when I asked him to be my best man, um, he didn't say this to me, but I learned he, he passed away and and I learned this from my grandmother recently. She said, I said, how did he react when I asked him to be my best man? And she said, um, well, he was the first thing he said was like, doesn't he have like a friend that he would prefer? (laughs) to be? That was
1: my hope that that would be the first thing that he asked, but that's really sweet.
0: And (laughs) no, I mean, he, I adored him. He was my best friend. He, I mean, When I first started college, uh, he would read every book I was assigned so that he could talk about it with me, even if he had already read it. He was a very smart man. He was a newspaper editor for many years and um, just a good, good man. So anyway, so, so much of what, uh, of my personal connection to music now really dates back to a lot of stuff that happened early on, as with a lot of things in my life and classical music, I mean... He would play records uh he would play these you know scores from films and he would tell me you know this is when the artillery was going over the hill and you know this was when this was happening and this is when the dawn broke and i mean it was just you know that's very um, impressive yes it was a very very great time of my life he was a great man and uh my love of classical music lives on now my daughter actually uh has taken up playing the piano i played the piano my grandparents Aww. played the piano and my mother played the piano. And wow. uh, she is taking up my love of music as well. That
1: is fantastic. Do you guys have a piano
0: in your We house? do. We do. Wow. Yeah.
1: So music. Music is important. Music soothes the savage beast, I believe, <laughs> is the expression.
0: Are you calling me a savage beast?
1: I am not in <laughs> any way, shape, or form. Um, but it uh, not only is music a boatload of fun to listen to and these days gosh you can just find out like new music constantly which is the only time that i wish that i were young in these times you know the rest of it like social media no thank you i do not want to be a teenager now i don't want cameras everywhere let's just begin and end with that i don't want cameras everywhere uh it's bad enough looking at you know Parties at college where they had an official photographer there, <laughs> and I think, oh dear, <laughs> I don't want more of this around. Um, but the ability to find new music—you know, when I was younger, I was just hungry for anything new, and I would get so excited for new music. And now you could do that all the time. It's like, you know, Spotify, boom, right there—you're just going to find a whole new bunch of stuff. And it's—if re- I had more energy and I were young, that would be very exciting. Now it just feels overwhelming, but also nice.
0: So I just had an idea. I think we should put together a playlist of songs that you and I are listening to right now. So just out of curiosity, we'll put it on the website, but just out of curiosity, what is Allie jamming on right now?
1: I, I love old school. Like I love um, Aretha and um, I love Gladys uh, and I like newer stuff. I'm a, I have to admit, and I will admit it right now, I love Taylor Swift. I just love her. I love every incarnation. I don't know that I would call myself that. And I wouldn't call myself a postie either. (laughs) It just doesn't sound right for a woman of a certain age. Um, But yeah, like, I think she's so great and talented. Beyonce, I feel the same way. Like, just go ahead, just right into my veins. I'm a happy, happy gal if I can listen to the three of them. And, you know, my favorite band is actually Death Cab for Cutie, which sounds like it should be something that it's not. Um, But it's very soothing. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like it, doesn't it? Um, And during the pandemic, like the early stage when everybody was in lockdown, the lead singer, Ben Gibbard, he had a series of, it's been on Facebook because somebody sent it to me and I got it. Um, He was at home and he did these like one hour acoustic, just him, concerts of all of the Death Cab songs. Um, And people could just request them. And so I just listened to every one that he did. And he was like, ooh, this is a deep cut. And I realized I own all of their albums. <laughs> and I know every single one of their songs. Like I kept waiting for something that was like such a deep cut that it would be exciting to find. I was like, nope, I know that one too. Um, And it just was, it was very nice and soothing and actually very um moving to hear him do these little mini concerts. Because it made me feel uh, that I was close to someone, you know, at a time that was very, very scary. And so, yeah, music can do that to you.
0: You know, what's interesting is my wife is a huge Taylor Swift fan. I actually do respect uh, her as a songwriter and I think she's really good. Um, but what was interesting was I'm not particularly like into her music and I don't really listen to her. My favorite band is Bon Iver And
1: ah, could oh, not, I know where you're going with this. Yeah. Yep.
0: Could not be any more different from the music. My wife life. In fact, she hates Bon Iver. Uh, I'm pretty much anything Justin Vernon does. Uh, He has another side project with a guy from the national Mm -hmm. uh, called big red machine. Mm -hmm. And he also has a bunch of other stuff with other groups that he's had and some stuff that he did himself way back in the day. But anyway um, yeah. So, you know, me and my wife have sort of been in these parallel, you know, universes of music. And then all of a sudden Taylor Swift gets to work during the pandemic and puts out like 800 albums Mm -hmm. and with the National and with bon Iver. And one of the songs they did was this song Exile that Justin Vernon and Taylor were
1: oh, on. I love Exile. It yeah. is such a good song.
0: Well and besides being a great song, it just my wife's musical world and my musical world came crashing together. <laughs> and it made us very uncomfortable. <laughs>
1: I, You know what? I think that that would actually, you know, that's the kind of thing that brings uh, people together.
0: Yeah. Our marriage was really on the rocks before, but now oh Bonavere God, and Taylor brought us together.
1: Hey, you know what? I bet they would be thrilled to know that that the power of music is so strong that they could bring together two exhausted parents of 700 children.
0: <laughs> so, all right. So we are both fans. You're a fan of Taylor and I'm a fan of mm-hmm. Bonavere. So give me your top three taylor swift songs have you had off the top of your head
1: yikes um i like ever i like the whole album of evermore i like folklore a lot it's so different than lover which was her last album which i also loved like loved oh my god i love that album um i i love her pop um i i like her even her country stuff like i just think that she's immensely talented and I also, you know, I pray at the altar of hard work. It seems like she's a hard worker. She so. is. So tell me what your top three Bonavera songs are.
0: You know, I feel like uh, one of the guys from Office Space, when, when he asks him, you know, which Michael Bolton song do you love? And he's like, oh, I, <laughs> I don't know. I really celebrate the guy's whole catalog. <laughs> but I actually mean it. Um, yeah, I uh, um, let's see. I think. Forever and ever it will be hollow scene will be my favorite song by them. Um I really love this song. They did a weird thing on one of their albums where they like made names that were indecipherable. So one <laughs> one of the songs He's a Weird Guy. Uh one of the songs is called 8 and then parenthetically circle. So I don't know what the name of the song is. 8 Circle. Uh and then there's another song called Stacks from their first album that I really really love. So Now that everybody knows I love terrible music and I likes good music, let's bring on our guests, Brian Kilgore, who is a studio musician in Los Angeles, and his wife, Kim, who is also a musician who teaches music.
1: We are so lucky today to be joined by Brian Kilgore and Kim Blake Kilgore, who are joining us from the Los Angeles area, and um, we're going to be talking about music today. Thank you both very much for, for coming on the pod.
2: Our pleasure. Yes,
1: thank you. I think we want to begin by finding out more about both of you. Could you tell us how you both knew, um, probably at an early age, um, how you knew you were musicians?
2: Well, um, for me, I um, I started um, junior high. Middle school used to be called junior high, but... <laughs> Um, and I signed up for a guitar class. I, I owned a drum set, but I'm, I mean, I signed up on actually, I got it wrong. I signed up for a drum class cause my parents had bought me a drum set and it ended up not enough kids signed up. So it ended up being a guitar class and I hung in there anyway and kept bugging the band director. Hey, you know, I want to play drums. I want to play drums and, you know, just to kind of explore it. And, and, um, finally he moved me into the band and um program and he was a uh, his name was bob sando a really great teacher and great at getting kids inspired about music and i mean that hooked me right away and then um as i you know started getting more and more into it once i started you know checking out at at first when you you know at that time if you're a kid and you're in band you don't want to check out all your friends are into were all my friends were into Chicago and maybe Blood, Sweat and Tears and Tower of Power, the whole, kind of the horn bands of the seventies, all great bands. And then um that kind of hooked me more. And then I started checking out other uh, more jazz oriented bands like Chick Corea with Return to Forever, his album Light as a Feather, what that was a huge thing. Um Herbie Hancock's records, uh, Secrets and Manchild, you know, I started checking him out with those records and then got to a weather report. And it was like, Oh my God, I, this is unbelievable. I have to, I have to do that, you know? And that was right at the time that Jocko Pastorius uh, started playing with them. I saw them live and it just blew my mind. So, I mean, I, it, I was, I was already fairly hooked anyway. And then once I heard them, it was like, I just, you know, this is going to be what I'm going to do. And which it was funny too, because I was a, a very good academic student, you know, very good at math. And my um, algebra two teacher in high school, when she, uh, when I told her I was going to do music, she sat me down and said, Brian, you cannot do this. This is, you know, you cannot eat a song is what literally what she said, you know? And I I knew her intentions were, were good. So, I mean, I, you know, but I, I said, well, if you're going to use a, you know, kind of a lame metaphor, you can't eat a quadratic equation either, you know? So, so um, I, but the good news, the good part of that was like she wasn't the only person told me not to go into music. Enough people did that, by the time I went to college, it was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to have to work harder than anybody around me and I'm, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to in- increase the odds that I'll succeed. So that that was kind of my uh, in a nutshell that was my approach from from 7th grade to once I got to college. <laughs>
3: Um I was um I had a little different background because both my parents were musicians. And so that started me really young. I was 3 when my mom was performing in musical theater in Los Angeles, but we lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I flew back and forth with my sister. Um so that was sort of at my first introduction of really experiencing what a what a musician's life could possibly be. Um but as soon as I could get old enough to start playing my violin, um, that's when I really took off. I loved it. And that was in my little third grade class when the music teacher came and said, hey, you want to play an instrument? And I just said, yes, definitely. Um, I didn't know that's what I was going to do at that moment. But um, as time went on, I got in youth orchestras and I just got more and more involved. My parents were also music teachers. As life went on, they began teaching and I saw how important Music, education, all these things go together and what happens to individuals when they play music. So I was like, yes, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a pro violinist. I'm going to go to LA and be in studio orchestras. Um, and then my path started changing more and more and I started getting more into education. So now I do both. I mean, I always have done both, but, um, I always wanted to give back really to see young people begin to play. Uh, any kind of instrument, whether they do that in life, it will always be part of their life, um, whether it's for for their job. Um, often it's not. Often it just go. it enriches whatever they choose in life. So that's sort of been my path. And I started a youth orchestra. So it's it's always that that first beginning stages of of being young has always been with me. So, I mean, I think it's a great question is how old. Well, I guess three.
0: Uh, this is a question from my friend, Jonathan from Janko town. He wanted me to ask you this cause I think he's always kind of aspired to be a musician. So, uh, and he's a very good musician, but, uh, he, he aspires to, uh, do it as a, a career. So, uh, how does one, what are the typical pathways that somebody gets taken up into the studio musician world, into that whole ecosystem?
2: Well, um, there there literally is no typical pathway cuz every musician has a completely different path but the 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 bottom line is you you know a player will develop a skill set that's going to be you know worthy or workable in a studio environment and then you have to just get to know as many people i mean a lot of people say oh you have to know people well that's not really true because what's true is that you have to get to know people. (laughs) And so you do that by playing with as many people as you can, little free rehearsals or jam sessions or whatever, anywhere you can play with anybody, you do it. And as you do that, you know, person that might just, you just do a little jam session, that person, then the next week, one of those people is going to say, Hey, I'm doing a live gig at a club, you know, next Thursday. You want to do it? Yeah, absolutely. You do that. And then, things like that. And then as it works, as, as that develops, you know, as long as your skill set is worthy of going to the next level, you know, every level of gig you do, there's people that are in the, on those gigs that are going to be also working at, you know, other levels of work and they help pull you up. And, and that just, and then you kind of develop a network of, of contacts and, and, um, you know, uh, peers and, and that, that just, you know, basically it's like, uh, just sort of the rising tide of, of just working your way up. Occasionally auditions will come up and that's, you know, that does happen and that can boost you to, uh, you know, next level or at least the next gig. But, um, but the bottom line is it comes down to just, um, that you know uh expanding your skill set and getting to know as many people as you can getting a a music degree in college there's a big benefit to that and that is that for one for four years you're going to be working hard on your on you know expanding your skill set but you will also there's an inherent network of of other music uh students and musicians that you're going to meet in college and that's that's a big thing and then as those people, you know, somebody you know in college gets a gig and they need a percussionist, they might say, "Oh, hey, I got the guy for you." you know. And, and so that's that's a big part too. And then there's the school networks like, you know, if you go to Eastman, you're going to sort of have a connection to anybody ever went to Eastman or Juilliard or you know, um any any great school.
0: Does it help to be where those networks are, I understand you can, you can build networks everywhere, but, uh, also to be in that milieu of Nashville or LA or New York, um, to be, you know, just do osmosis to be able to run into people.
2: Absolutely. It, it, and that's one reason why I, I chose the school that I chose Cal State University Northridge. It, at the time it was the third largest music school in the country. It was. I was a resident of California, so it was, I mean, literally my full-time tuition, uh, my first semester was less than $100. Um, this was back in 1979, you know, so it's gone up since then, but still, it's much more affordable. So they had a great, and they had a great uh, jazz program, and, and I got very lucky that they also had a great percussion program, and it was based in the L.A. area. So I knew I would be around more musicians. However, I think you can – for your degree, you can get – you can go to almost any school as long – any of the big good schools like Eastman or, you know, the new school in New York or Indiana or North Texas State. Because what happens is those players – and you, they build – you those players build a network in their school and then they all end up in Los Angeles or New York or Nashville anyway. So – you know, just because you, you don't, just because you go to a school that might be out of one of those three areas, it doesn't mean you'll have no network. You you will, but it is certainly a factor. And and eventually, you have to be if you want to do studio work, or if you want to do any big touring gigs, you have to be in one of those three cities. Really, you can have a great life in other cities doing music. You know, as long as you know, you'd have to either get a symphony gig or um, certainly teach to supplement your income and you can do, but it's going to be a, a different life. And as long as you're okay with that, you can have a great life in music. It's just not going to be, uh, you know, something that uh, will really impact much people outside of that city. But you, as long as you can be happy with that, you can have a great life.
1: Can you talk about the differences between touring and studio work and, um, you know, playing like smaller live gigs and how you get into each different component? Do they all have to sort of combine together or can you pick one track? How does that work?
2: Well, they're really, really different. Even just the skill set you have to have because doing doing touring work, you have to what you need to be good at is, Playing a playing songs and and approaching a song and coming up with parts of like, How do I how do I make this song the best it can be? There's a lot more, um, at least for percussion. I'm a percussionist. Uh, there's a lot more um, improvisation and and um, ad lib approach. And ha- however, um, those skills that you need for touring are good for playing in the studio too you just need more and other skills like you need to be able for studio work you have to be able to read really well you um and just the more diverse skill set you have in the studio the more valuable you're going to be and that's that's been my mantra basically for my entire career and it's why I'm working as much as as I am in the studios like, I mean, I, my specialty kind of is percussion from anywhere around the world. But I also do orchestral percussion. And I can, you know, I've I've toured with R&B acts and I've, I've played on hundreds of records. I mean, basically every genre you can think of. And if they put music in front of me on any one of those genres, I'm going to be able to read it. And it's going to work the first time. And if it's, you know, uh, and if something isn't going to work, the first time I read it, I'm also, you know, you have to develop the, the skill to make it work. By if you have to do a little bit of editing or changing or whatever, you 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 do that. And a lot of times with music too, that's printed out, it's um, depending on the instrument, um, it it can be such that you what you have to do is look at it and say, okay, you have to understand what the composer is going for the concept so sometimes the players will have a better way of getting to that the the ultimate desire of what the composer wants by by changing some things and 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 making it really more what the composer wants than what they've written down
3: the interesting thing that a lot of people don't realize is that studio work you walk in and you have no rehearsal You sit down, you look at the music from a a second, and then the mic is on and you record. Yeah. And that is huge. That is the difference between something you can work and practice for days, weeks, go into a rehearsal studio and rehearse, compared with the studio artist goes in and plays it literally perfect the first time they see it.
2: Yeah. And what happens with percussionists, it's unique, is we have, you know, Hundreds of different instruments that we're playing. So, and there might be, let's say, there's five of us. Whoever's per- principal percussion is in charge of saying, "Okay, you know, Joe, you play this; Sue, you play that, and you know, I'll play this." Um, so, a lot of times, as the orchestra is going from cue to cue, each piece of music is called a cue. Um, they'll if, they'll do a run through as the percussionists are moving things around real quick to get ready to do the next recording. So we finally get our instruments, you know, rearranged and we do that, you know, with as as minimal moving as possible, but we have to move some stuff and each person get to their station. By the time we get our instruments arranged, they the rest of the musicians have done their one run through and they're like, okay, great, let's record it now. And we literally are playing it for the first time as the red lights on. You know. And I've had, I've had a you know several instances instances where it's even worse than that. Like I remember doing a Robbie Williams record, and it was a big band type thing, and um, this one song they had there was no percussion part. So they said, "Okay, Brian, uh, you're tacit, which means you don't play on this." So I'm sitting there twiddling my thumbs, and at the they, so the band were, you know runs it through once or twice okay let's record it and all of a sudden in my headphones i get it you know they say from the from the control room hey brian there is a vibraphone part on this so you know get to the vibes right now so it literally as there's eight clicks before you know like a count off before we start recording the copyist ran into the room and put the music on my stand as the as the eight count offs were going so i literally couldn't even look until the downbeat. And, and, and that was the take, you know? So, I mean, you, you just never know and you need to be able to, you know, be adaptable and make things happen really quick.
1: I am made of questions right now. Um, And so just off the top of my head, how many takes normally do you have to do in order to get it right? That's question. Number one, question number two, are there, certain circumstances that allow for more improv versus less like, you know, I I remember reading about actors, that there are certain directors where it's just nothing but improv. But then there are certain directors where it's, if you don't read every single word in the order that I write it, then you're going to have to do it again. Is it a similar kind of situation for music?
2: hundred percent. Like if it's orchestral, if it's an orchestra, then it really pretty much has to be written out and you have to do what's written. And, you know, if you're playing xylophone, it's, it's very likely going to be doubling with the brass, meaning, meaning playing the same part. So it has to be not only played right, but you have to all the little nuances of every note that really make music have an impact. You have to be listening to who you're playing with and match each other and and make all those adjustments. You know, printed music is really there's so many limitations to it. You you see the notes and you you know you can play them, but there's you have to have such an understanding of different genres and everything that you need to make you know all these minute adjustments when you play to make those pay the notes on the page come alive. And whether that's listening to other musicians that you're playing with, or just even knowing the the genre. Then if you if you do, um, you know, like, let's say congas, if I'm playing congas on something, a hand drum, then generally what happens is they might write out a little, uh, like a a part that they kind of think they want, but the more important part of the printed music is that I'm going to be looking at is telling me when to start and stop because I'm going to be able to come up with a better conga part than what an arranger might, might write. So they, it's basically a guide. And, and then there's, uh, you know, if I'm playing on a record or something, it's usually I walk in, they say, okay, here's the song. Listen to the song. We listen to it and they say, okay, what do you think would sound good on this? And I'll say, you know, this, 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 and this, and then, okay, let's record it. And sometimes there's music and sometimes there's not you know but even if there's music on that it's generally just kind of a guide of what the whole the song is like a lead sheet of you know eight bar intro you know bass and drums come in at the first verse that kind of thing you know
1: i brought my my daughter at her request for a birthday present one year to a you know like the kind of the teen idol of the the times about 2 or 3 years ago and i won't name names um but it was a massive you know it was like the biggest concert in the entire world and i think in the entire place there were five men maybe uh the rest were just all teenage girls and their moms and so we were all there's 20,000 girls screaming at once and i've been to a fair number of concerts in my life i have never been somewhere where there was not one note that was improvised, like it sounded exactly like it did on the streaming device or the c d it there was not one beat, and I was looking around thinking, Oh my gosh, like wait, I want it like somebody riffs somewhere and nope, it was just there, and the girls knew just when to scream, and it was like the perfect environment for twelve year old girls and it's it struck me as like. On the one hand, give the people what they want. On the other hand, like really, you couldn't have just just ten seconds. I didn't I didn't need space in the middle of it. But you know, you could have done something that was a little bit off the beaten path. Does does that ring familiar to you?
2: Definitely. It depends on the the artist and the type of music and and all that. But you know, there has been a trend over the past twenty to thirty years that technology has allowed some of these touring acts to actually, it really isn't even live, you know, um, except for maybe the singer, you know, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there literally, literally are acts where they have musicians up there, like really pretending to play and they're not really playing. It's, you know, and it depends on the genre. Like, you know, if it's uh if it's an old school R&B act, it's, it's everybody's going to be playing. If it's a, you know, uh, a pop, the latest pop sensation. It's, you know, it it might not be truly live, or aspects of it might not be truly live. You know, um, so then again, it's it's incredibly inspiring to hear a great band play live and sound like the record, but you also know they're playing. You know, I mean, there there's there's a difference to the energy when that happens and it's magic
0: even even some of the big time acts that are some of the more maybe more old school established acts who have become sort of a corporation or a machine themselves i think still have like backing tracks for mm-hmm. vocals you know i mean it's it's like a hybrid
2: yeah, of absolutely. like is like a big thing that would be that might be synced and you know the musicians have you know, uh, either in-ear monitors or maybe even headphones and they can hear a click track. So they're playing with something that's going to make sure that whatever is pre-recorded is going to be in in time with them.
0: Can I tell you a funny click track story? And then you can just, uh, you can goof on my, my musician ability and you can just goof on me generally. Uh, and you're not going to have any sort of, uh, connection to this because you're up here and I'm Not even on the radar, Uh, but we were in a really terrible band in high school and we played in a battle of the bands and we got a gift certificate for an hour in the studio. And so we went into the studio to record our really terrible songs. And uh, I told the guys ahead of time, I was like, we're gonna have to play to a click track. Oh, no problem. No problem. We can do that. And we got in and didn't get anything recorded because none of them actually knew what that was and prepared, uh-huh. and we couldn't we couldn't actually record anything. Yeah.
2: Could you tell people what a click track is, actually, Brian or Kevin? A click track is. Do you know what a metronome is? I mean, it's it's basically a metronome that we listen to that's that's pre-recorded. So when we're when the musicians are recording. That's our, our unified reference point of where the time is, where the tempo is and where <clears throat> exactly where each beat is. And it's called a click track. Cause it's just a click. It's like, it's literally sounds like click, 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 click. So if the tempo is one twenty, it's going to be, uh, uh. if it's gonna, if it's going to be, you know, 90, it's, you know, or whatever beats per minute is what I'm talking about. So, um, and that's one thing that a, uh, a studio musician has to have: the skill to play in time and on time. So when it's when it's on, if you're supposed to play a note on beat one, it has to be right on that, right on w- literally within a few milliseconds of of that click. Um, otherwise, it's noticeably off. And there are some great musicians. That are great at playing live and improvising but you put them with a click and they literally can't do it you know so it's it is a completely different skill set and that's one of the differences between live players and studio players difference being that i mean really i think with very few exceptions any great studio musician is also going to be a great live player the opposite is not necessarily true and i've done you know, especially being a percussionist that specializes in in percussion from around the world, what happens a lot of times with composers, let's say a score takes place in, uh, you know, I don't know, you can pick any country, like oh, let's say Brazil, and and the score is they want a Brazilian influence. They'll say, Brian, you know, we want this, you know, we're going to do all this Brazilian stuff, but we want to get the real players that really do this stuff. Sometimes they'll hire. Some Brazilian musicians, and and this is no reflection on Brazil specifically, but just the type of players that do other work. They'll be on a recording session, and they they can't play exactly with the click because there's it's just a different skill set. You know, they're great musicians, but it's a different skill set. And um, it's, it's happened over and over where you know a composer will do something like that, and then doesn't go real well. And so then they'll say, okay, Brian, we're going to do another session. We're going to redo that. And it's going to be just you or you tell me who to get or, and as the other musicians and. You
1: know, uh, no, Lawrence, I don't want you to hear that. That means that you were great live. You just weren't good in the studio. Cause I don't yeah, think I'm that's where you probably sucked.
0: both. Oh no, we were bad all okay, over the place. Uh, I just, I we really had the rare talent of being bad, no matter where you put us um but I, I just find that answer you'd really just surprise me cuz i brought that story up as humor for you to <laughs> say no good musicians don't actually <laughs> but i'm i'm fascinated by the idea that there are great musicians that don't have that talent
2: well it's just a it's a different skill set if you listen to i mean some of the greatest recordings of all time like um there's a Miles Davis record called Four and More" that's live, and the tempo starts at you know on some of the songs at one tempo. By the end of the, of the song, it's a radically different tempo, and that's a beautiful thing in that environment. But when somebody's written a score for a film, and you know on bar you know ninety-two on the end of three there's a big symbol crash and it happens right as uh you know Wiley the coyote hits the roadrunner on the head it's it it has to be where it has to be and that's just a different it's 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 a different skill set
1: can i ask I, I don't know if you guys have kids yourselves but i know that um kim you're around kids a lot as you watch children come into your classes and into your lives do you ever think good Lord, the music they're listening to these days is drek. Or do you listen to it? And you're like, wow, look at what they're doing these days. I mean, what's your, or is it just like a happy mixture of both?
3: Well, we have two children ourselves. I mean, now they're grown adults. Um, but growing up in the house, everyone had their music going in their rooms, us, them. Um, so I found that I learned a huge amount from that, huge. Um, because I, what I loved was not necessarily what they loved. Um, mm-hmm. But we did influence each other quite a bit. Um, and I find that like right now, even like we talked about COVID times with my youth orchestra, we're all on Zoom. And what am I doing? I'm showing them movie music. I'm showing them behind the scenes. Um, so I'm doing that. And then they're like, hey, have you checked out this? Um, I have a summer program that I do. And we do... Um, And uh, what used to be an iPod, but we can't really say that anymore. Right. That's that dates us. But uh, streaming tunes and we just say, bring in anything that's appropriate language, all that kind of thing we have to be careful with, but just bring in what you love and then talk about it. And And so we've played all day and then we just take some about an hour off and we just all go in one room and they play their stuff. And it blows me away. It actually just like totally influences me. And then I sort of see where they're at so that I can sort of pull them into my ro- world as well, uh, mm-hmm. whether it be classical or anything. I mean, where it's music. So, you know, and that's like, hey, have you heard this from West Africa? And they're like, what? And I'm like, yes, this is amazing. And this will change your music soon, you know. So I think um, influencing each other is, I learn as much from them as they learn from me.
2: Definitely when our kids were young, they hipped us to to some music that we really liked, you know. And the bottom line, too, is there was plenty of crappy music when we were young, too. It's really, you know, what we what we hear from each of previous decade is kind of filtered through time. We remember the good stuff, but there was there's always been crappy music.
1: There's a wonderful TikTok going around now of um, inappropriate songs. I guess it's a series of. TikToks TikTok anyway whatever the plural is uh of really inappropriate songs from the 80s and the first one that i saw was if i could fly um which was and i like benny martinez i think is his name um and you just have to listen to the first line of that and go oh oh how did this get oh my gosh how did this get made and not only how did this get made how was it played at every bar mitzvah i went to when i was 13 years old and that was like the song that everybody slow danced to because you'd fly away and then you realize listening to it in hindsight, Oh, that's not good. No, no, no. That's not good. She's only 16 years old and he's not. And that's bad. So, (laughs) you know, there's always garbage music, I suppose.
2: There's a great book um, called uh, lexicon of musical invective by Nicholas Slonimski that is, is, um, Bad reviews of every major composer from critics at of, at the time of each composer. It's a great book to read, to put in perspective of how you, you know, the filter of how you view music in your time at any time. It's it's an incredible book. Oh, and it's awesome like, fun. you know, some of the greatest masterpieces ever. And it's like, oh, this, this guy has no sense of melody whatsoever. It's, these young people are writing terrible music, you know, that kind of stuff.
0: Can I ask you a question? the The stereotypical question would be, um, name your favorite artist, and then you guys tell us some like obscure, you know, musician that like one of our listeners would know, and you all would be like, yes, you know, they're they're great. And I think that'd be really useful. But I, I have a different question for you, um, which I always find really interesting when a, when I somebody I know who's really actually musically inclined and knows what they're talking about says, no, 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 that person's actually really good at their craft there's plenty of people who are are really famous and, and really popular right now who I think you could look at and say that guy can't play or she can't sing or whatever the case may be. Uh, but is there somebody who maybe we wouldn't think of as like, no, you don't get it. Harry Styles can really shred the guitar. Like, is there somebody who,
2: <laughs> yeah. So like somebody who's not like, I would say sting, but that's obvious because everybody thinks he's great. Right. Uh, I don't know. Um
3: I love I mean I, I I talked with my daughter just this week. I was like Lady Gaga is amazing. She is phenomenal. And probably everybody knows that, but as a from a classical violinist, she might not know that. Um I admire so much about her. Um uh, she's an incredible musician.
2: Well, and we just watched the Billie Eilish documentary. Um and before I watched that, I was like, uh, you know, I don't I don't really get it. After watching the documentary, I you know she really does have something special. The two of them, it's her true. and her brother together, they do have something special. And it's even if it's not exactly what I'm into, it's it's good. It's good, and it's a it's a unique perspective on art, and it's beautiful. Um, I'd never liked Eminem, and then I did a gig one time with him, and it was like. Wow, this guy is absolutely mesmerizing. There's like, there's, I I totally got it when I heard him live, and I was blown away.
1: I know that you've worked on um, several movies, so can I read you a list of movies that is per, a purposeful list, and you tell me uh, at the end if you've worked on any of these? You don't have to say it immediately. Ready? Defy Bloods, Mank. Minari, News of the World, Soul, Judas and the Black Messiah, The Trial of the Chicago 7, and One Night in Miami.
2: Of all of those, I believe the only one I worked on was The Five Bloods. Do you um, know
1: why I'm asking you about those
2: movies They're in all nominated for Oscars this year, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah.
1: So can you talk to us about working on... Music for a movie and then having that music be nominated for an Oscar. Is that something that is therefore important for you professionally? Is it just really cool? Do you get to go to the Oscars? Can you take me with you? Just go ahead and like, Um, give us everything.
2: We don't, you know, we don't get to go to the Oscars or the Grammys. Even I, I played on one of the, the, I mean, I played on many Grammy-winning records, but album of the year one year was the the um, the record "Random Access Memories" by Daft Punk, and like, you you know, it's great. But you don't, you don't even if you play on one of those records, you you don't get invited. You don't even get a Grammy certificate saying, "Hey, you know, you played on this record." unless you pay the Grammy organization 50 bucks and then you get a certificate, yeah. you, know? <laughs> you can hang on, hang on your wall. So, um, but that being said, um, what was the question? Oh, <laughs> uh, Well, um, so playing on a, on a record like I mean, on a score that was uh, last year I played on, um, well, uh, well, let me think. Well, just, you know, if you, it's basically like any other, like any other movie or record I play on. You walk in, you see the music, you give it the, you know, you your absolute best. You do the best work you can do, and you move on to the next gig. And that's that's pretty much what it, what it is. Whether it's an Academy Award winning movie or a Grammy record of the year, or doing some little project that's, you know, a a uh, singer putting out her own record. It you want it, you you just give it your best and then you move on, and that's basically what we do, you know.
1: Can I take your pride for you? Like, can I say I know the guy who played the drums for the soundtrack to Defy Bloods and use that to name drop? Because I I think you're you're very modest, okay. and I know that we're called utterly moderate, but you know, I think you can like you know walk around with cool. a little swagger. I
3: mean, it's sort of interesting because um because this is what we do, I know Brian has played on hundreds of movies, I mean literally probably you could just go through a list of movies and he's often featured, but even in the credits, sometimes often it's not there but but you don't necessarily know that, and we we don't do it for that we're we're doing it because we adore it and love it, so I think that's sort of the difference like it's like. Yeah, it's wonderful to be doing these. Of course, it's incredible. But you're moving on and going to the next, yeah. the next adventure.
2: And and we've been around famous people. And I, fame is not something I would ever want. <laughs> you know, I, I like being able to go to a restaurant and nobody recognizes me, and I get to do, I get to work on all these great records and movies and stuff. And the work is what I love. The music is what I love. And then I don't have to deal with any of that. Like there's no paparazzi following me around. And, you know, that's kind of what I like. And I also like, you know, if you're if you were trying to be, you know, an artist or whatever, more of a follow the fame route, those people tend to have shorter arcs and and working in the background, playing on, on records and films, You know, you can have a longer career arc and a more stable life and raise kids And a, you know, I mean, I toured before we had kids. But once we had kids, I didn't want to tour anymore because, you know, if we're going to make the commitment to have kids and raise them, then that's the commitment. You know, can't be I didn't want to be in my case. I'm not, you know, everybody has their own approach and I'm not saying anything about people that don't do that. But for me, that's what I wanted to do.
1: Well now I feel like Dustin Hoffman at the end of Wag the Dog. I just wanted it for the credit. Okay. <laughs> We're different people. That's you know,
2: that's I, so I think I've played on I mean I don't even know maybe 400 films, I don't know. And records I tend to get more I, I'll get I'll get credited on most records I play, on, not all, but of all the films I've played on, I've maybe I've maybe been given a screen credit on 15 you know, maybe twenty. I mean, really, not very much, and it's really only it. I don't know. It's it just depends on. It's just kind of a random thing of. It's not even really how you're how much you're featured. If you the more you have more chance if you're really featured. But the the musicians union has only recently developed a a, a deal where we we're going to start getting more screen credit, or even after the fact credit. Like now, if you look up on IMDb. I think starting this past year, I think if you play on a movie score, you'll at least be in the on the IMDB database, which is Internet Movie Database. People can look at that, do a search for a name, and see some of the credits and things.
0: When I was younger, when I was in like middle school and high school, my favorite band was Aerosmith. I loved them, I followed them religiously, you know, I just consumed everything that they put out. And I remember when I found out that on their earlier records, like their, I think their second album, Get Your Wings, I found out that a lot of the really big solos and the lead parts that the guitarists, that Joe Perry and Brad Whitford hadn't actually played those parts, that they were played by professional studio musicians. And I was, you know, so disappointed and I've since learned that that's a regular practice. But um, how often is that the case where people are getting credit for things that they actually aren't playing themselves?
2: Well, I think that happens a fair amount, but um, it always has. There's a great movie called um, The Wrecking Crew about the studio musicians of the 60s. There was this group called The Wrecking Crew, basically. They were, you know, just casually called The Wrecking It wasn't a formal group, but they were the players that played on everybody's record and they would literally it'd be, you know, the Sonny and Cher record would be the same players as the monkeys or the Mamas and the Papas or whoever. And, and it, they were the players because they were good at getting records recorded in a three hour session or, you know, a song or three songs or whatever. So that's always happened up until the development of digital technology. To record a record, to record music, they needed people that could play in time and in tune and and quickly. With the advent of digital technology and Pro Tools and programs like Pro Tools, which is an audio recording software, you know it's gotten less necessary for musicians to be, uh, for studio musicians to be needed because. If somebody's a little off on this beat or that beat or whatever, then they or they sing this note out of tune. They can go in and fix that one note, and um, uh, that's that's made for records at least. Studio musicians a little less necessary. But um, that being said, there always has been musicians that you know will record something and somebody else gets credit and that's just the way it is still happens there's also uh you know you've probably heard of autotune autotune uh you know it's a it's they use it in a lot of pop music actually for a sound effect because what it's when somebody is really out of tune you know originally they would use autotune and if it really had to do major correction you could hear the correction they did that they, they, you know, somebody somewhere along the line said, hey, that's kind of a cool sound when you hear that. So now a, a lot of pop artists use it as a as a literally as a way to get a certain sound because you can hear the 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 changing of their pitch. Um, and. Um, but definitely, you know, there, I think, are a lot of singers, particularly in pop music. Where you know somebody may be beautiful or maybe be a good dancer, or they have one thing that makes a record company want to use them, they just can't sing, and you know uh, autotune will do that there you know in the past, if that was the case, like let's say Millie vanilli um you know literally somebody else sang their music, and now it's you know like i I have friends who have done i won't even name the show but one of the musical shows that's on TV now, and they named a certain artist who's a huge name. She came in to sing and could not sing. Well, actually, my friend in the band told the sound guy, wow, she really sounds good. And the guy said, yeah, that's because I'm running her through this, you know, basically real-time pitch correction software. Without that, this artist literally could sing, you know, but, but, um, there's all kinds of digital correction software that does stuff like that.
1: So Lawrence, your band has a future.
2: Yeah. Now I played on a, er, you you mentioned Aerosmith. I played on an Aerosmith record. This was a case where, um, I, you know, I was going and thinking, oh man, I, you know, this will be fun. I'm really excited about doing it. I wonder what, you know, Steve Perry's like, or not Steve Perry, Steve Tyler. (laughs) Wrong band.
3: (laughs) There (laughs) you go. That's our point. Exactly.
2: (laughs) I, I, I did the recording session and they weren't even there. It was me and the record producer and the engineer. And now to, in their defense too, I mean, I wasn't playing drums. I was playing percussion. They don't have a percussionist. So I'm there doing hand percussion. So, you know, it wasn't like I was replacing somebody in the band. I was there to do what I do. To add to what they do. And they asked me to go on the road. I don't even know if it was connected to that, but like when that record came out, they I got a call to tour with them. But we had just had our our first child and so and it was gonna be like a year and a half tour. And so, you know. You it, could
0: have become a drug addict. That's too bad.
2: Could have been. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, I think in the sixties it was a different time. It, it, some of the some of the studio musicians I've heard stories with, you know would smoke pot on the you know on the sessions and stuff. Man, it is so it is so competitive now and so hardcore. Like the the, the musician peers I know I are, are like some of the straightest people you'd ever know. They're I mean everybody's just a complete fanatic workaholic taking it seriously there's we have a good time but but it's all like as serious as it gets there's no drugs at all
0: <laughs> well it's funny you you say that because uh you would read these books and these stories and you would hear these interviews from steven tyler who's just like a space cadet but uh they would talk about the 70s like and all the partying and 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 how this was the time for music and then you would hear the bootleg copies of how they sounded when they were drugged out of their minds. Uh-huh. It's some of the worst music you've ever heard. Yeah. Like he's not singing yeah. in tune. Uh, you know the guitars sound like dinosaurs eating cars. I mean, it's just yeah. terrible stuff. Yeah,
2: I, I let me do one more follow up. You're asking about possible like negative stories about certain you know any famous artists. I, I wouldn't do that as much as I can tell you like. I think the nicest person, most coolest person I've ever met who I was in awe of uh, was Carol King. I played on one of her records, and she literally was the nicest major artist I've ever just an absolute joy, down to earth. I mean, you know, just super, super cool and no airs about her whatsoever. Um, also, um, Linda Ronstadt was. I did a record with her. She was like, she had her kids there. Like she's basically babysitting in the, in the vocal booth as she's singing her tracks on her. It was a Christmas record. Super cool. Super cool. And then of course, you know, I, I toured with um, Tina Marie and played on a lot of her records. Start. I toured with her starting in 85 and she, was really an amazing person amazing musician and singer and she became a very close friend to both of us Sing at our wedding in my parents backyard in northern california and you know just awesome person and and really uh like that was the perfect that was my first big tour and um it couldn't there couldn't have been more perfect gig for me because it was a great band great music and she liked the musicians to take chances and, and, you know, take left turns and she would be there leaving the way. And so it was, it was a, a great gig and she's amazing.
0: Can you each tell us about um, your favorite instruments that you play and the particular kinds of emotions that they elicit from you?
2: Well, for me, I mean, I do a really broad range of instruments and that's, there's not a cop out answer, but like that's what I love about it is I'm constantly doing different instruments. That being said, the thing that really hooked me on percussion was kind of the um playing congas and which come from the afro Cuban tradition um of you know salsa and and other afro Cuban rhythms that really spoke to me and hooked me deeply. And I always have and always will love that stuff. But then there have been other traditions too. Like there's a a style of drumming from Senegal called Sabar. um, There's Sabar drums. I've studied that and oh my God, they're just insanely beautiful rhythms. And that's been very inspiring too. But I always, I mean, I've I've studied a lot of different things and I just, I love learning about new uh, rhythms and instruments. And also learning about other cultures too, and that's part of learning any any percussion instrument that's from another country. You learn about beautiful ways that other cultures approach music, and everybody does it differently and uniquely. But those two would be like you know Afro-Cuban and Sabar drumming. Those two things like just blow my mind. <laughs>
0: Kim, can you tell us about the instruments that you play and which ones kind of elicit different kinds of emotions from you and that kind of stuff?
3: Sure. Um, I play violin and when I was young, I started on piano and it was fun, but as soon as I heard the violin, that was it. I would go to the symphony with my parents. I heard it. It just spoke to me and I said, that's it. That's that's the, And my mom and dad were saying, what about the cello? The cello is a beautiful instrument. I'm like, no, 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 no. The violin is it. Um And I still, when I talk to my students to this day, I say, you have to choose the kind of instrument that draws you in, that pulls you in and that you fall in love with. And for me, that was the violin.
0: Can you each name uh, a song that really kind of inspired you when you were young and and kind of lit the fire under you and um then can you also name a song recently that's inspired you as well
2: well for me um i can name a few albums if if that's okay um heavy weather and there's an album called heavy weather and another album called black market by a band called weather report those records really inspired me um the percussion and drumming both on those records. And there's a band called, um, Oregon and they did a record called out of the woods. That record and percussion on that record really, really inspired me. These are like mid seven, mid to late seventies. Um, as far as, uh, a more recent recording that inspired me, um, well there's a, a bass player a singer from Cameroon named Richard Bona and pretty much everything he does inspires me it's he does just amazing music there's um, I think one record I really like in particular from him is called reverence and um, and then another musician that really inspires me and is not a percussionist um but and doesn't even use percussion, but is incredibly inspiring is a mandolin player named Chris Thiele. And he is just unbelievable, really, really incredible. And he has a band, he has a few bands. He had a band called Nickel Creek and another band called the Punch Brothers. But he also had another band called the Goat Rodeo Band, I think. And I mean, that's with like, Yo-Yo Ma and uh, a few other just great musicians. And, these are people that transcend genre and and just everything everything that Chris Thieley and Richard Bonnet does do inspires me. I'll say that.
3: <laughs> yeah, and um, for me um, as a violinist, um, Itzhak Perlman was the one for me, um, and I saw him play live. And when he could sit, he he has a disability, so he he would sit playing, and um, that just captured me that he could just. Hold the, hold the audience with this incredible violin playing. So that was my first influence. I think really when I said, "Wow, that's incredible." And then my other one, Brian took was Chris Thiele, um, and it's 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 interesting. And there's just so many people that are incredible, but it doesn't have to be the same instrument. It's just what what a musician brings to the table. Um, Absolutely. It, it, it's it's amazing to watch. So, even though he plays mandolin, he has influenced my violin
1: playing.
0: Um, I just wanted to make a quick correction, and we can actually go back and drop this in if we need to. When Brian, when you said Nickel Creek, I believe you meant Nickelback. So you can go ahead and, and correct that now. You meant um, Nickelback inspires you, correct?
2: I don't think that was it. No, <laughs> I think it was it was Nickel Creek. In fact, I'm sure of that. Are
0: you hearing me? Is my microphone working? Nickelback. Wow. <laughs> uh,
3: well, yep. I was going to say, you know, it's um, interesting too, in this whole COVID time, um, because I run a youth orchestra, we've had to do everything on Zoom. And when we were talking about click track and you have young people in your life that you're teaching, the idea that like your experience where you went into that studio and you had difficulty now put that, that I have uh, 60 kids on Zoom and I'm saying, okay, now you're all playing to click track because in five weeks we're doing a concert that could be put all over Facebook or wherever your social media of your choice that your parents love and you are all being recorded in your bedrooms or in your living rooms. Um, So that has been when we, we were back to the beginning talking about COVID, how has it changed us as musicians trying to, get other musicians to play and early on in the pandemic you'd see on tv these lovely broadcasts where everyone's playing um in the squares and everybody's like okay so not just youth orchestras but every school orchestra every high school orchestra every middle school now we are all sharing t- as teachers all over the united states how to teach students to play with a click track and play right together because when we edit it together we want it to sound like it's actually an orchestra and that it they didn't change drastically from the last concert they had just played where their parents were wowed. So I think that's a, a, just a fun little tidbit to know because uh, I'm a constantly telling these students, this is a new skill deck. Now you are, we are in the studio world of learning how to play.
1: Brian and Kim, this has been so much fun. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Our pleasure. Thank you it's for been, having it's us. It's been
2: fun for us too.
1: We're going to keep listening for you all over the place in orchestras and in movies. And we're going to demand that you get the credit that you so richly deserve.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Utterly Moderate. We are deeply appreciative of all the support we are getting from listeners, not only in the U.S., but in countries around the world. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. As always, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other major podcast platform. Or you can listen to us on utterlymoderate.com, where you will find every episode as well as each episode's companion resources. Again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Please listen carefully, 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 carefully.